Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, better known as Port Quentin. My other host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, which will be in a couple weeks, we're going to be starting up the weekly by week by week podcast again with a storm of swords. In the meantime, I've been doing a series of episodes with uh, guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as doing text and audio posts of my own. And I'm very happy to welcome my guest for this episode. Welcome on to the Novacast, Angelina. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. I know we're... Uh, bu- I'm so pumped to be here. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm just so pumped to be me here too. that I'm like bursting at the seams. I know. We, uh, we're yeah. uh, both excited to talk uh, this topic today. One that is uh, touches on some of the stuff we talk about on the podcast more regularly, but also is just a really fun topic on its own right, which is the uh, 1974 musical film, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. Mwah, so, uh, chef's kisses. Mwah, mwah, absolutely. So before we get into the specifics of the movie, what is what is your relationship to Phantom of the Paradise? For those of you who don't know me, my life is basically, if I'm not shitposting about A Song of Ice and Fire, I'm shitposting about Phantom of the Opera. I think that's like my ur fandom. And like I've been obsessed with it since I was probably like 11 years old, which is really sad because I'm uh, turning 34 in a couple weeks. So more than half my life has been, uh, you know, deep in this bullshit, so to speak. <laughs> but um, I first saw Phantom of the Paradise. It's it's kind of one of those movies that I didn't see it at the right time for me. So I first saw it, I think, high school. I probably was like in 10th grade. And I was at that period in my life where when you're in fandom, you just take things absolutely seriously. Like as much as I like to dump, like dunk on the Tumblr kids, like uh, Tumblr didn't exist when I was that age. So who knows how annoying I would have been. But I hated this movie because I, I was like, it, it's not getting it. It does not get it at all. And um, now my opinion of that, obviously, over the years has changed entirely. It's probably a top 10, if not a top five movie for me. Um, like definitely would take that on a desert island and sit sadly watching it for the rest of my life if it were possible. Um <laughs> But yeah, I, I've come around to this full circle. I'm like, actually, no, it's probably the best Phantom of the Opera movie. And we'll get into that. But Ooh, uh, yeah, I like that's that. my relationship to it. That's great. Yeah, I remember, I don't remember who showed it to me. I think just someone had it on in college. And I remember it was just, it was mm-hmm. just, what is this was my reaction to just every successive scene. And then I just, I kept, yeah. <laughs> I kept finding out little bits and pieces more about it. I found, I found that was directed by Brian De Palma who I'll talk a little bit about in a bit. And then I kind of, uh, people were comparing it to Rocky Horror. So I started looking at it as in terms of like the cult canon in that way. And then there's just all the kind of combination of the stories that go into it. It's just such a, it's such a trip to watch for that because yeah, there's the strong uh, phantom backbone to it where you have the, the character haunting the the paradise in this case, this rock club and uh, the, the the main singer, the Christine figure, who's who's singing his his pop cantata that he becomes romantically obsessed with, and then there's he has he has a rival for that. But then, in terms of what his his uh, his masterwork is actually about, it's a riff on Faust. And as the movie goes on, that ends up being part of the story too. And there's a portrait of Dorian Gray, which we'll get into. And there's Beauty and the Beast stuff. And it's all a rock opera, so it's folded into that kind of '60s, '70s era. So there's just there's just a ton of stuff going on with this one. And I I could see reacting negatively to it at first, yeah. just out, out of sheer just like overload. It doesn't make it easy on you for sure. No, it's like uh, I think thirteen, fourteen. You really don't have a good sense of like irony or like. Um, at least compared to like when, you, when you're older, like when you're 13, 14, you're still mm-hmm. kind of in this very like hyper literal mode, you know, where you take things 
pretty surface level. You might think you're not. You might think you're like the smartest like teenager in the world, but like for the most part, you're just looking at things pretty literally. Um, I remember when I used to care about things. Now nothing right. means anything to me anymore. <laughs> and this is truly the movie for that. <laughs> But yeah, it also has like a little bit of Frankenstein, even before we get into it, like just talking about like um, making fun of like 70s music industry stuff. Like it's it's just it's such a fully loaded plate. Um, and the thing that's been really cool to me um, over the years, I think when I saw it again in college, that was when it clicked. And I was like, oh, OK, I totally get this is what this is about. And then like it just slowly I kept rewatching it like and then it just it just grew on me over the years. But seeing people who I really admire artistically um, expressing admiration for it, like. Mm-hmm. I know this is like one of Guillermo del Toro's favorite movies, like one of Daft Punk's favorite movies. It's and like it's very obvious once you watch it, you know, <laughs> like ah. Uh, you can trace a lot back to it, and yeah, it's one of those. It's a cult classic, and it's specifically a cult classic among other weird creative people. It's like you know the the cliche quote about the Velvet Underground about how only only hundred people bought their albums, but all of those guys went off and started bands. And similar here, right. where yeah, people were inspired in a bunch of different ways because there's there's filmmakers who are inspired by the style of it, just the the wild colors and camera movements and just the set pieces on set pieces. I could definitely see Del Toro being in, in, into the style of it. But then, yeah, Daft Punk famously kind of borrowed their like retro robotic helmet look from the the Phantom look in this one. And that's, yeah, purely just as a, as a, as a costuming angle. There's so much to chew on with this one. Um, there's, uh, before we even get into his character, there's the, 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 the character of the the Philbin, the record store kind of crook who works for Swan oh, the Villain. yeah. And I just, on this rewatch, yeah. I just loved his costume because he's just, he's wearing like the, the cliche rock star western cowboy-ish jacket. And, and he's right. got stuff all over it. And he's got this big ugly medallion. He, it's just this mishmash of styles and he just clearly just doesn't care. Like none of, none of this is his yeah. actual personality because he just will, yeah, whatever the trend is, he'll just wear. Yeah, he's a poser. Exactly. Like, I think I showed this to one of the last few times I watched it. I was watching it with somebody um, who had never seen it before. And I had never really picked up on Philbin before, but like that was the character that they just like laughed at immediately. Like they were just like, oh my gosh, like this is such a good like stock character. <laughs> like, like between being a toady henchman, but also like you said, just kind of being like this, this very fake posery, like meathead i guess yeah he's very I, recognizable I, that's the way to put it exactly and that's yeah, yeah that's what a, a lot of it works on is every most characters in it you've seen just kind of a dozen versions of them before can immediately lock into it to follow them through it is a a very weird and very quickly told story yeah so it has a huge cult appeal and apparently i i knew vaguely this but i was looking at more it's very huge in winnipeg specifically like they did like a couple of festivals around it and paul yeah, williams Palooza. yeah right yeah paul williams sold out yeah. a couple of shows and then, like the local, you know, the the local city fathers and whatnot got outraged about the influence on the the easily malleable minds of the youth, as they tend to do. Uh, One of those, um, and uh, Paul Williams and the youth culture. <laughs> exactly. When you when you think you know radical rabble rousers, I think I think Paul Williams for sure. Paul Williams. Exactly. But like a lot of cult classics, it's just like a lot of disparate things come together, and a lot of like different parts of culture are activated by it at different times. It didn't do that well financially but it's it's yeah, become a much more kind of revered later on uh, it's definitely having a bit of a, a renaissance I, th- I guess with like the advent of like film twitter um i've just noticed a lot more people who are like yeah this movie kicks ass and i'm like where were you guys 10 years ago right I'm when not we needed you at all <laughs> i'm totally not bitter at all not in the least but uh yeah 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 it's definitely having its moment in the sun and that actually makes me really, really happy. So <laughs> Yeah, and that I mean what you're saying about like it you need to have a certain level of 
irony to take it in and a certain kind of, Mm -hmm. I think you have to have both an appreciation for kitsch and also love getting it skewered. Which might, you know, that, that that can maybe be niche sometimes, but I think this that's what this movie gets into really well. And it's it's an anomaly yeah. for the guy who made it, Brian De Palma, who was in the the new Hollywood gang. He was friends with, you know, Lucas right. and Spielberg and those other nerds, Martin Scorsese. And uh, it's De Palma generally didn't make movies like this. A lot of he's had some mainstreamish breakthroughs. He made Carrie right after this, which is amazing, right. and he made um, a Scarface later on. But he's he's known for a lot of kind of more Hitchcocky thrillers. And uh, kind of yeah. pushing the envelope in terms of sleaze. And this has, uh, there's the cynicism that, that this has in common. Yeah, with all of his other stuff. But um, yeah, this is, it, it does have the kind of, that flair that those guys had, you know, at that time of trying to make kind of cynical anti-establishment politics kind of movies. Yeah. This definitely has that in spades. It's funny because like this, this like tanked so hard. And I, one of my favorite things about this movie is that um pauline kale who i'm sure you know but, yes indeed um, if there's anyone listening who doesn't she's pretty much like one of the most influential film theorists and uh reviewers uh, i guess to exist in modern history and she was a huge champion for like that usc crew of like george lucas uh-huh. and steven spielberg and she really loves this film <laughs> or loved this film she passed in 2001 i think but like she loves this movie or loved it and so like i'm like pauline kale got it you all can get it too, goddammit. Yeah. yeah, I know. She was she was a big fan of De Palma, I know. Specifically, I know, like, championed a lot of his movies because she loved his his way he would, like, just fuse trash uh, art and with his own kind of sensibilities. And she always loved uh, directors who would do that. And this too, like, it's just, it, this, this moves like such a breeze, this movie. It's just 90 minutes. And I could see, like, a lesser director making it take over two hours. Like, as, you know, as right. certain phantom adaptations have maybe uh, self-indulged on occasion. Uh. <laughs> Only the lesser ones, but like, yeah. but, and obviously this isn't a straight fan adaptation. We'll talk a little bit uh, more about it later. But like, this is just a. I think my thing about this movie is that like, obviously there's an immense amount of artistic sensibility that goes into it, just from like the way it's like shot and laid out to just like the music itself. But it also finds that balance of just being completely vapid and like again, like you said, like lightweight and pointedly so. And it it always like Brian De Palma. I, I'm like fifty fifty on Brian De Palma. Sure as a director. Um, but I feel like this is one of the movies where his his style really, really works for me. Like it just, most fandom adaptations are usually super self-serious. And like, this is just like that perfect balance of just the inherent goofiness of the story. Obviously there are other narratives that get put into this that are not phantom, but like just the, the goofiness, but also the genuine, I guess, earnest capital R romanticism mm-hmm. of it. And it, I love it. I love it so much. Like it's all so many things at once. It's very I, it's just so stylish and cool, but also so stupid. Yes, yes, I like, love it. It's, it's so stupid. Yeah, it never it never loses sight of the ridiculousness of everything that's happening, even as the stakes are pretty intense for the specific people involved. Yeah. But the overall culture around it, yeah, yeah it does not pull its punches. So to uh, run through the plot real quick, and then we can we can talk about our, our favorite bits. So uh, it, it all centers around the opening of uh, the Paradise, this new rock club managed by the head of Death Records. Uh, Swan. And, you know, Death Death Records kind of gives away this guy's general position in the narrative. He's our antagonist. And then um, we have our protagonist, Winslow, who is a earnest, young, romantic, uh, slightly naive uh, composer who has written this this cantata based on the life of Faust, based on the story of, you know, the, the, the devilish temptation of Faust. And Swan and his uh, record company cronies uh, steal it from Winslow. And uh, put it on for their own uh, profit at the opening of the Paradise, 
Uh, when Winslow pushes back against this, a swan frames him, sends him to jail where he gets all his teeth removed uh, and then kind of goes crazy, escapes. And in the process of trying to like derail the the uh, press, the, the printing press on the record itself, gets his face smashed in and runs away to hide in the paradise. Meanwhile, uh, he uh, Winslow encounters a woman named Phoenix who is auditioning to sing the lead role in the cantata and is immediately drawn to her and thinks she's the best one for the part. Uh, Winslow makes uh, his wonderful Daft Punk-inspired costume with his, his beautiful uh, bird uh, helmet and his cape. He, uh, he kills one of the bands that works for Swan, explodes them on stage, kind of gets Swan's attention and then teams up with him, signs a contract in blood, naturally. Uh, Jessica Harper as Phoenix gets to sing her number to, to uh, do well in her audition. And Winslow insists that she be in the show. Swan agrees. Uh, then naturally Swan immediately goes back on his deal and replaces Phoenix with probably my favorite character in the movie, Beef. I'll talk more about my darling boy, Beef. Uh, Beef takes over the lead role, but naturally Winslow is incensed by this and murders Beef on stage. Phoenix takes over the lead role and is kind of seduced by stardom, ends up taking up with Swan. Winslow is horrified, horrified by this, tries to kill himself, finds out he can't do that, according to the terms of his contract with Swan. Tries to kill Swan and find out he can't do that either because Swan has made a literal deal with the devil. Winslow finds this out and also finds out the way to uh, destroy Swan and destroy his contract, saves Phoenix's life during Swan's and Phoenix's wedding because Swan was going to have Phoenix killed. All mayhem and hell breaks loose and Winslow ends up taking down both Swan and himself, Curtain. So as we said, a lot, especially towards the end there. But I think it's, it's all set up so well from the beginning when you have one of my favorite recurring elements, which is this band that's in the background of the movie. And, and starts off as this 50s band yes. in the opening credits, the, the Juicy Fruits. And they're, the first time through this movie, I genuinely did not pay attention to what they were singing about because I was just kind of getting into the groove and rhythm and like colors of the movie. And they're just singing in front of a crowd. But what they're singing about is a guy who, a singer who killed himself right. to call attention to himself to get money for his sister's operation, which is just d devastating in any context. But it's just only, only unfortunately aged well. And, and, and it's just and it's of course I didn't notice it the first time through. And that's kind of the point is that like you're just if you're watching this kind of show, if you're hanging out at the paradise, you're just grooving along and you're not necessarily paying attention to the to the lyrics. But that sets up ultimately what happens to Winslow is that he he's he's going to sell himself out and lose lose his life for love. And then, yeah, you have the, the Juicy Fruits all kind of uh, cheering the crowd on for Swan, who just claps. And from the beginning, you don't even see Swan. He's just the camera. He's just he's just clapping for what he saw. It's just a perfect setup. Yeah, it's great because it feels like almost like a bait and switch. Because if you've never seen it, but you're only like if, if you just have something of fandom distilled into like your consciousness, like you think like, oh, that's that's the bad guy right there. Like, it's such a good like, I guess, a little bait and switch there that that I love about that. Like. It confuses you from the start and kind of screws around with the expectations of what you're about to see. Because, like, I mean, at this point, there had already been, like, at least, like, three major film adaptations of Phantom. It become, like, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly, it's only, like, a hundred years old, the book. And, like, it only really got picked up after the Lon Chaney film. And so most of what people know through that is through, like, film distillation. Um, so, like, you're just like, oh, there's a creepy guy hanging out. That's the Phantom, right? And you're like, no, it's Paul Williams, and he's Satan. That's such like, a good point, even with the gloves and that, like, <sighs> that position of being above and looking down. But it's, but it's like, but everyone knows he's there and mm -hmm. everyone wants his approval. It's like, like, that's what the Phantom would love the case to be. Right. But it's like, Swan is already in this position of power where right, everyone's right, right. looking for him and everyone needs his approval. And then there's this great, great setup where in the foreground, you got Philbin, that record, record industry guy talking about 
uh, a singer who has dared to exercise her own agency rather than do exactly what he tells her. And that, again, when watching this, especially in the wake of uh, stuff that's been going on with Britney Spears, that definitely was a, a case of things not having changed, only gotten worse since the 70s. And Swan's and Swan's saying it doesn't matter that the public has already moved on. It it doesn't matter what's going to happen to her. And in the background, you see Winslow setting up his piano, like as as all the other like people who work for Swan get rid of the stuff from the band. Yeah. And Winslow just starting to launch into his his cantata. And Swan's like, "Stop! Let's listen to the music." And it's again, like yeah, like the Phantom. It's like the Phantom listening to Christine's music. He's captivated, but in this case, Swan just wants to like steal, literally steal the music. And and completely cut Winslow out of it because he's right, not exactly. yeah Swan's not actually romantic in the least. No, not at all, <laughs> not at all. Um, and I I love like this kind of um when you kind of kind of go back to thinking about like what were seventies music trends at the time and one it opening with the Juicy Fruits who are like that shananana kind of throwback band that like. Anyone who was, like, cool in the 70s, like, fucking load. Like, cause the 70s was going through that 30, 25-year nostalgia cycle where everything was super about, like, you know, like, happy days and Greece and, like, this looking back towards the 50s. And the Juicy Fruits are meant to be that. And it's so, like, there's such a... I, obviously, like, the band that plays this band that keeps changing throughout the movie um, is very talented, but there's such a tremendous amount of loathing in, like, the, the way they're portrayed. Like, it's just, like... The most square, like, patsy, like, sit on it kind of thing. You know the song slaps. I love it. But, like... <laughs> That's what's great. It's a really exacting performance of something really banal and, and vapid, like you said. And it's just... It's it's eerily perfect yeah. that way. And, th and so then you have Winslow, who's just, like, he's got the messy hair, and he's got the glasses, and he's got, he's got the ill-fitting clothing, yeah. and his big clunky piano... And just like everything screaming non-commercial as loud as you possibly can. And he's got his ex insanely elaborate, over-the-top, beautiful... And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Like, his, it's just like unfiltered ambition. Like, with, with no concern for... N none of the calculation yeah. you see with Swan. None of, none of the bloodthirstiness yeah. you saw with Philbin. It's just like the, the camera circles around him and he's throwing his whole song into it. And it's, it is, it's, it's so goofy, but also really heartfelt. And you, you see Swan just look at that and go, I, kn I know exactly yeah. what to extract out of that, that I can then recreate endlessly. So yeah. it's this, it is this like this, that's your first glimpse of kind of that tortured romance is him get, getting up there with his piano and throwing his tiny, like his, his, his stick right. insect frame in, into his, into his beautiful number. I know. He's, he's such a insect, a stick insect. Rest in peace, William Finley. He passed away a few years ago, and he's so good in this movie because he has to play eight thousand things in this. Because um, again, yeah, he has to start off as like that kind of mousy, almost like I guess Leonard Cohen-y kind of musician, mm -hmm. where it's like very introspective and like not it doesn't have an immense broad like appeal to it. Um, and then he has to just basically go and play like you know camp twenties horror villain, but also still remain very synthetic like sympathetic while also talking through all these voice filters like it's such a good performance like it's such a good performance it's I, oh. it's amazing yeah he, he sells the kind of the, the tender bits so well but then also when after later after he murders beef he just cackles to, at the top of his lungs and his triumph is just so yeah. intense and it's just he, he sells yeah. he sells every bit of that and so uh, Sw swan sends philbin to to steal his music and um also setting up a little bit in that scene that um that Winslow does have a temper. Uh, he like throws Philbin against the wall. So that does set up the kind of, again, the, the kind of the 
the more d dark side of kind of anger and recklessness you do need for a phantom character to develop. Although, you know, from a, from a different source in Winslow's case. But so, yeah. So then, yeah. So then again, we, we move immediately to like it's a month later and just like Winslow has been clearly left out. He goes to, to Death Records, which is this wonderful. There's so many like just weird Art Deco-ish like obviously fake sets in this movie that I love that aren't even yeah. trying to look like real places. But they're just they're just beautiful yeah. like little tunnels that he's walking through. It's, yeah, it's it feels like very like um 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 like Stanley Kubrick a Clockwork Orange kind of like the sense of like disreality that's there the way like the camera moves through space everything's just like a little too bright and round and not quite the right size like yeah he, uh, he he sneaks in and we finally we finally see see Swan Paul Williams and all his glory just steps forward with his just this beautiful shitting grin on his face and it's uh, yeah Winslow's had to to, to sneak his way in past uh. And there's a yeah, wonderful scene where he's just wandering through Swan's mansion and he's just he hears all this all these women singing his cantata and he realize, gradually realizes, oh, I've just been completely cut out of this operation. They're already auditioning yeah. women. And that's when we meet Jessica Harper and he first starts singing along with her. There's a, a sweet moment where um, he offers to help her and she's like, OK, but are you, you know, she implies, are you doing this because you, you know, expect something out of me? And he says, I think it's the line is like, I would never let my personal desires influence my aesthetic judgment. And like, so, and that's so Winslow good. to the T. Good, yes, exactly. He's just like Mr. Music Machine, which is very interesting given what the character becomes. You know, <laughs> true, exactly. Yeah, it's a per perfect uh, setup for him there. And it's like it's good because also he's like he's not denying that those desires exist; they are there. He's just saying, right, yeah. but I still I know good when I hear it though. So don't don't yeah exactly don't worry about that. They never. They never let him get too cute, you know. It's true. <laughs> That's what I like about it. Yeah, it is. It is it's perfectly like, yeah, pitched he, he, because you are gonna gonna yeah watch him evolve into a a more you know more romantic, but also just a more a more dangerous and scarier character as he goes. And that he, his downfall happens uh, so swiftly when as, as soon as he's kicked out of Swan's mansion, <laughs> he's immediately framed for having drugs on him, and then he's immediately taken to Sing Sing, where he's his teeth are taken out uh, as part of an experimental dental program, and then he. Oh, there's there's a great bit where it's just like again so wonderfully fake. It's just like a judge like sitting on a like with his gavel oh. against a, against an American flag, going guilty, guilty. <laughs> yeah. and, and Winslow just turns to the camera, and goes, oh, "No, Swan framed me," and it's just like shot real yeah. close up. It's shot from below. Yeah, it's like shot from below, and his fists are like right in your face, and it is so broad and big that like it almost feels like. That, that was, like, I remember the first time when I watched it in college and was, like, revisiting my opinions of it. I was like, wait, this is so insane. Like, it's just going for it. It's just already, like, this is a cartoon. Like, exactly. This, you're, you're, we really, like, it's really good at communicating, like, you need to suspend your disbelief here. Even though, like, you know, <laughs> it taps into some very real, interesting stuff. It, it still is always just, like, you, like, trying, it's, it's always trying to get you on the same page that it's at. And it does it really well. Like, without, if that makes sense. Yeah. Visually, it does at least. Yeah, no, it's so it's so clear what it wants to linger in and what it doesn't. And I love I love movies that do that. Movies that are like, like, oh, this scene is the scene that captivated us. We're going to spend forever on this scene. And no, this this is now we're moving hysterically yeah. quickly just to to get where yeah. we need to go. And there's also also in that regard, I love is his, his escape from the prison. Is like he just gets into like oh, a right. mailbox and then just the mailbox just falls off a truck and he gets out of it and he is in a city. And it's just, it's so fast and it looks like it's like it's on a comedy yeah. show or something. And it's like, it looks like a sketch and it's just, it's so It looks like whenever so you funny. watch like a Monty Python skit and they go from like live to like, yes. like a pre-shot thing, like that's what it feels like. So then you get, okay, so then you get, we have, we've had the juicy fruits 
And then we, I just, this running joke where now they have their second incarnation and it's the same guys, <laughs> but they're the beach bums yeah. now. Cause now we have to do a stupid version of the sixties. Cause we just did a stupid version of the fifties. And it's just like this great, like, so those guys don't get to have any identity and they're just whoever Swan says they are. And it's just, we've always been at war with East Asia. They've always been yeah. the beach bums. Right. Here we are. And they're just like, they're onto their new identity, which is exactly the world that doesn't have any room for Winslow with his insistence on things being the right. way they are and having meaning. Like that's just never, never, never going to work here. And that's when we get to Palma. Yeah. Known for ripping off Hitchcock, he rips, rips off Orson yeah. Welles here, where at the beginning of Welles' movie, Touch of Evil, there's this famous long take where a, a, a car has a bomb in a trunk that's ticking and eventually goes off. And uh, uh, the Phantom does the same thing here, where he plants a bomb on stage during the rehearsals, during the during the Beach Bums rehearsals. And there's this, there's this, it's something like the split screen in the style that Brian De Palma always loved, where you're watching what the Phantom did, and then you're watching right. like the stage right. performance. And there's this this great horrible bit where one of the Beach Bums like has this like, I think it's he's talking about his, like a horoscope, or like he has a vision or something, a sense yeah, that he's going to yeah. die, and like Philbin just like makes him go on stage Doesn't anyway, he make and him then do he a does cocaine? die. It, like- or, or he suggests doing like yeah, like yeah. it's funny because again, like that could be yeah, that could be bump. very Keep like going. art school, like cliche. Do coke? Look, the industry's full of cocaine, but again, it's just like so bizarrely funny and just kind of inserted in the background that you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm not mad. And then, yeah, exactly. And it's happening while on the other half of the screen, like you have Swan or you have the stage view, and it's just the constant, the constant visual kind of interplay with what you're looking at yeah. and how that that uh, runs through the whole movie so the, that the, then the beach bums uh, explode <laughs> you do and so then yeah then there's this great bit where where uh, uh winslow and swan team up directly and we get to watch paul williams just be so just disarmingly wonderfully cruel to winslow and just like not even acknowledging that anything happens no what now we're partners why are you being so unreasonable winslow yeah. <laughs> don't really trust me and so they set up the wonderful like voice box thing that Winslow gets where he can still kind of sing and talk in a in a in a, in a robotic way. Yeah. And and he's and so then he starts uh, uh the, the first thing he says with that with that voice box was a close up on his on his teeth, his new teeth on his mouth and the mouth he goes Phoenix. Phoenix. It's like right there. Yeah. That's that's what he cares about most. That's what he's immediately going to zero in on is is making sure that she and only she sings his great music. And Swan's like, "Sure, buddy. You can obviously. We're friends." Yeah. Why would I ever Oh, I should also mention, like, as we go through, like, um, like the various different bands. So, like, the song that Winslow sings in the beginning, that is his cantata. Like, you find it like being, you know, changed depending on whatever genre of when it's whether it's like the Beach Bums or the Undead, as you'll see later. Like, you'll find that piece of music being crammed into that genre very jarringly. So, like, the Beach Bums have it like this very like deep, soulful song that now sounds like a a, a Beach Boys. Uh song and it's it's fantastic sorry i had to mention that because like that's one of my favorite i remember when i first figured that out like oh carburetors man they changed the lyrics too to be about like something stupid like cars and like just driving with your chick it's it's so funny it takes the idea of the leitmotif and turns it into this horrible thing where yes. like your the repetition of your song is getting dumber and less meaningful each time because it's yeah. so removed from your emotions and just plugged into this machine right and you see that so strongly in one of my favorite scenes which is the scene in i guess swan's office yeah i guess uh, where it's like it's, he's got cool the scene. huge the huge record desk that he sits in the middle of yeah and everything is dark around it and he tells philbin well i'm betraying uh winslow because i'm the villain and so i'm not gonna have phoenix uh sing in the show she's just too perfect i'm gonna have someone else and he just like the, like little spotlights go on around his desk and he sees different bands, different styles, yeah. each singing part of the phantom theme 
that Winslow has written. And one of the best bits is like, as soon as Swan says, no, 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 you're no good and moves on to the next one, you can see the rejected bands like walking out, like behind yeah. the other bands, just like, you know, looking like a, sad. Like a little literal conveyor belt. It's so good. Exactly. They have, like, they have like the three part like girl group. They have like a Neil Diamond ripoff. It's all very, and it's very funny. Like, you know exactly who they're like trying to like point at with that. You're like, haha, it's Neil Diamond, you know, <laughs> like, and it's just, yeah, this very surreal sweeping shot. It's, it is like literally one of the coolest things in in film to me is that scene like i love it like it says so much um especially because like it's all in like this black void too like there's no like real background it's all negative space for the most part just and like the desk is like the concrete thing and it's you know very round shape so yeah just like you know everything just kind of flows you know and it's very temporal it's just like so cool it's and i like i mean one of the the great things about watching Phantom or any any great show live in theater is just reveling in the the artifice of it and the things that are so specific to theater. And I feel like in scenes like this, the the people making this movie are trying to find a movie specific way of getting that across. Here's a way of capturing a scene that isn't realistic, but it's very specific to our our style and our medium. Yeah. And then yeah, so they're going they're going through Winslow's Phantom theme. Each one's saying a little snippet, and then the spotlight arrives where it was headed all along. On beef. Beef! Strumming out a glorious riff and growling, come together in me now. And Swan's like, yes. Literally the audacity to name this character Beef. Like the pinnacle of selling something to people. It's like, here's what you want. It's beef. Like Paul Williams uh, literally says like, yeah. He's like, I give you beef, you know? And it's just like, wow, man. <laughs> like, this could have, like, fail in so many other directors' hands, but it's just, like, so silly enough, like, because beef is revealed in a coffin. Like, there's a Frankenstein element to beef that's very fun. Uh, right, I, I, Swan's I, just come back from Transylvania. Yeah. And and that's, right, and that's, so that's when you get, yeah, this is the great twist to the, the backup band things that they're, even though they were killed He's their back is the literal undead, and now they look kind of like Kiss, yeah. And they have like a, a vaguely goth thing going on, and that's just so wonderful that they can't. As, as it's a nice setup for Winslow too, that you can't escape even in death. Swan's got your number, and you still work for him, yeah. And it's and like it's just like even even darker or edgier or like vaguely goth stuff can still be incorporated right back into his machine. Right. And right. You're, you're still going to, you're still going to be singing that same song. It's just, that's yeah. just perfect. Yeah. Like there's no genre that can escape, you know, this kind of commercialization ultimately. Um, man, that's so deep shit. Um, <laughs> I know. Right. Beef of course is, is so we, we finally see him stomping on stage and yelling at Swan during his first rehearsal, trying to yowl high enough to get through trying to stand on his extremely high heels. So, like, how would you... Yeah, Beef is, like... I don't know who specifically he's meant to be. Like, it's obviously, like, there's the very glam rock David Bowie stuff. But also, he's just, like, so big. Like, he's literally Beef. Um, And also, I should say, like, this character, I guess, you know, is, like, maybe a little dated, but I don't care. He's my problematic fave. um, Because he is... I guess what's the word I would look for? Mincing? Um, he's but like very get, stereotypical stuff I've, for I've, sure I've puzzled over why it works really well still and I think it's just it's played to it's never brought to attention you know like it's never they never comment on that specifically like maybe maybe um oh Philbin says something offhanded but like that's about it really you know it I mean he has the best lines in the film like he has a line where 
where he says, I know drug real from real real, you know? And I, 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 I think it's just like the writing is just too fun. Like it's, it's, it goes so hard into such a silly direction that like it, you know, it works. I, I love beef. Beef is like my, I love beef. <laughs> For, and he's, he's so uh, personality driven and yeah, and just takes over every scene he's in. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a, and well, and he, but he's also, I think he works for me, I think also because he is actually a sincere character and he's yes. like, he's not actually cynical and he, like, he's, he's, he's just like kind of a, a vaguely talented kind of airheaded sweetheart who's yeah. just in over his head. He's a constant And I would watch a whole movie about him. Oh You're man. Right, he's a professional. Yeah. He literally says that too. He goes, "I am a professional." So there's two. My two favorite lines in the movie. One is one is in, one he says, but one is inspired by him. So when he's he's negotiating his song with Swan, Swan just says, "Ah, make it your own. You got the basics of it." And then Beef points out what no one in the movie is pointing out and pointing out, which is that won't that change the meaning of yeah. it? Which is, Let me do it. Won't that change the substance? Yeah. And then Philbin from the crowd with his weary face just says, "Nobody cares what anything's about." And that's just, that's just such a perfect, just devastating line of like, yeah, none of this is has meaning, kid. No yeah. one cares what the lyrics are. Yeah, it's, it's not just, what this is. It's nihilism. The movie. It's delightful nihilism, I should say. But like, it's it's well, it's, it's just so so like just refreshingly blunt. Like he just cuts through it all. Just yeah, no one cares what anything's about. And then yeah, the other my other favorite line. So we get uh, yeah, De Palma, big Hitchcock fan. He does throw a psycho reference into this one a when Beef is showering before the show. And Winslow's coming in. He's got the knife, so you think he's going to kill him. But he just shoves a plunger into his mouth. He's like, you can't sing. Only Phoenix can sing my cantata. No, 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 no. It's just a wonderful, wonderful comedic bit. And then so Beef, quite sensibly, decides to run for it. And then, yeah, there's this great that he's monologuing. He's coming down the fire escape and yelling at Phil. And like, I'm a professional. I am not running. I would not run away because I had stage fright. I would only leave a show because a creature from beyond told me I had not to do the show. <laughs> Yeah. And it's just his it's just so frustrated and um I just love that. Yeah, it's just creature from beyond. It's just what Winslow is now. Yeah, it was like, it was like the karma's the karma's so thick around here you'd need an aqua lung to breathe. Like just and uh right. the, the actor Garrett Graham, some of you may know, uh as the doing one of the greatest voice performances of the nineties, he was uh Jay Sherman's dad and the critic. So uh I didn't know that. That's yeah, great. yeah. So I'm just like, man, this guy is eternally funny. Um but yeah, beef is beef is great. Like I, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't like beef. The moment, uh, they see him. Exa- yeah, as soon as he turns around and strums that guitar, yeah, uh, he has you. Even though, even though objectively, it's the worst thing. Like you can see why Swan likes him. Of course, he's just he's just pure charisma. Yeah, and um, and so yeah, unfortunately, alas, we have to say goodbye to beef because Winslow tells him anyone who performs Phoenix except anyone who performs on music except Phoenix will be killed, and beef is is conned into doing it just like that beach bum guy was forced onto stage yeah. uh, by Phil. But there's this constant just like sacrifice angle going on in the movie where just like everyone who's being put, like the guy who killed himself in the opening number, anyone who just is in this machine just gets ground up. So uh, like Winslow beef. kills beef. Winslow throws like, you know, like a god throwing a lightning bolt, but he's throwing like a chintzy lightning neon prop. And that's how he kills beef. And beef is electrified in glorious slow motion. Yeah, and uh, the it's audience... like watching Boromir get hit with arrows. Really, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just so sorrowful. And the audience eats it up, like which is very important. So, like, it, yes, like it, again, like the audience doesn't care what it is as long as it's entertaining and different. And so, like, you know, that's when, when now, we, like, he basically has Phoenix left because he sees that you know Winslow, you know, will put his money where his mouth is if he doesn't get his way. Yep, and yeah, and the audience just wants the novelty. And then, yeah, careful what you wish for, of course. As soon as Phoenix is in the center role, she starts liking it and starts getting into the stardom. Yeah, she and does then, the uh, And then oh Winslow's my... immediately on the outside. 
So one of my other favorite things about this movie that like usually when I bring up Phantom of the Paradise and there's like a couple of moments that people gravitate towards that they want to talk about immediately, it is Jessica Harper's uh, dancing during her mm-hmm. audition, <laughs> her audition for the Paradise. Uh, I once had like a two hour long conversation in a bar that started because is of, that right? Of I can't explain it because she sings like this kind of like seventies like kind of uh, pipe organ groove kind of number, and it's just like. I don't know how to explain it, but she does like this little like weird hopping like I don't I don't know. It, yeah, it's it's, it's so like a good. shuffle, and then sometimes it's more active. Yeah, it's um, like a shuffle and, and spin. Then, it's a drunk wine mom dance. Like I, it yeah, and it has it is that kind of that seventies kind of kind of mom song to it. Yeah, but then Jessica Harper looks like she's doing it sarcastically sometimes. It's yeah. just it's it's a weird it's a it's a fun moment. I don't know how I don't know how intentional all of it is, but. I don't know if, like, they did it, and Brian De Palma was just like, this looks ridiculous, (laughs) and I don't think she knows. Because, like, yeah, like, I I don't know where that, what that's pulling from, or rather that's just pure Jessica Harper, baby. Um, But, like, it's it's one of my favorite things. She gets caught up in Swan's, like, uh, I guess, charms, and, like, Winslow gets pissed about this and ends up inadvertently discovering Swan's dark secret, which is that he was, like, some 50s Bobby Soxer pop star. Who, was like, who couldn't bear getting old, right? Yeah, which is it was just such a funny moment too. Oh. It's just perfect it's casting because so that is kind of what Paul Williams looks like too. Right, like he yeah. looks like oh, who left you know the fifties out too long in the sun? So that's <laughs> yeah. So it's just like yeah, it's this great, great chilling moment, chilling and hysterical. Like as as with a lot of Phantom of the Paradise, where you realize oh that like this is this isn't just a story about the Phantom of the Opera writing Faust, that this is Faust because, uh, yeah. like, so Winslow sees that that a Phoenix is going to going to tie her, uh, her uh, fortunes to Swan. He attempts to kill himself and and finds that his, his, his life is bound to that hellish contract that he made with Swan and that Swan made a similar deal. He investigates further and finds, yeah, video of uh, Swan about to kill himself until, like, the devil showed up basically in his mirror and uh, made made it made a pact with him uh, to live forever, and that so instead of instead of the Dorian Gray portrait in the attic aging in your place, instead it's it's the f- it's the film of uh, Swan making that deal that ages in his place, which is just a just a great little uh, technological spin uh, yeah, on the yeah, whole thing. A, yeah, and I love it. There's something just so wonderful uh, about Paul Williams in this role because if you've Again, if you've never seen Paul Williams, he's like the least intimidating looking person in the world. And yet, like, he somehow, like, especially like the swan in the 70s hair, he's got like a Carol Brady kind of sausage curl right. thing going on and like these big leisure suits. But like, he makes it work. Like, you know, I I, I, <laughs> I think the only thing I'd never seen him in, in is like his two second cameo in like the Muppet movie. Before, right. Like that. Like, yeah, I was just like, whoa, interesting. I'm thinking of like this movie with like a more sinister looking character playing Swan and it would not have worked at all. It would like, it would be look like he was taking itself too seriously or just like there's a, I mean, there's just like his, the reveal when he's first introduced to like walking into the room of, of women lusting after him and, and cooing his name right. and it's Paul Williams. <laughs> that is kind of the joke where it's just like, it doesn't yeah. matter what Swan looks like because it's, it's the power and the mystique and the money that, that surrounds him. That, right. that and 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 in that way, there's there's kind of that parallel with Winslow, who also doesn't you know look like a rock star, and and o- over time, like there starts like the there's like some crossfades between the two, and uh, Winslow himself has made a similar deal, 
And so even though Winslow does, you know, obviously have a more kind of tortured romantic relationship to art specifically than Swan ever did, there is that that same sense of, of Winslow having been corrupted by what's happening and kind of his, his, his other ideals uh, ha- having faded away. And then uh, that kind of just uh, leads to the kind of just uh, mayhem insanity uh, of the end where you have yeah. <laughs> uh, Swan trying to marry Phoenix and also uh, kill her at the same time. And uh, Phil yeah. is playing the priest with his big sunglasses, and then and then he gets shot. It's just this uh, this this wonderful uh, opening of the paradise that immediately descends into into blood. Yeah, and like the audience again eating it up, like like just a lot of people not even like. There's like great shot like as it pulls out at the end, where like you just see like everyone's still partying. You know, uh, Winslow's dead on the stage, Swan's dead on the stage. Uh, Phoenix is like a mess, but everyone's still just like kind of going on. And it is like, it's very funny, but also again, bleak when you sit and think about it for too long. You're just like, oh, wow. Yep. They're still not. Yeah. There's this great bit where Winslow is, he's dying and he's crawling along towards Phoenix. And there's this guy from the crowd who like gets down and starts looking at him and like starts crawling along next to him. Like, is this the cool thing that I'm supposed to be (laughs) doing? Is this the fad? Is this... They're just so removed from an authentic gesture. And that, again, is like the, the backup bands that keep getting resurrected. Or like even Phoenix's name, like, you know, Resurrection. And in this movie, it's just like Resurrection and Immortality are just like horrible things that just like yeah. that just suck at that. And it's like at some point, it's like Winslow's probably better off at this point yeah. than he like was. Like he becomes that, yeah, <laughs> he becomes like that guess I'll die meme, you know. Yeah, and pretty much. Like, yep, yeah. Because, like, once he figures out that he has to die in order for Swan to die, you know, it, it is that very romantic, I will do this for the one I love so they do not die. But also, like, you know, it seems like a pretty miserable, like, limbo that he lives in. Um, and then, you know, what's really funny to me, be like, because uh, Faust features very prominently in this. I'd argue it's more of a Faust movie than a Phantom movie, but Faust is very important in the Phantom of the Opera, the novel. Like, it is, like, the main, like, Gunnar's Faust, which was written in the 1880s, is, like, the main, you know, backup opera that's kind of going on throughout the whole book and yeah like that that line of selling your soul whether literally in in a, in a contract that is like a huge parody of like modern <laughs> legalese it's so funny like there's like that great scene where like winslow's reading it in his little robot voice and mm-hmm. what is that know, mean? paul williams is yep. yeah paul williams is doing like a snake oil thing we're like oh it doesn't really matter you know like oh it's just a, that's a usual like clause that's on those things it's just very very funny like again it could have been very art school, like, let's make Faust, but modern. And I don't know. It's just, it leans into the silliness of it. Because Faust is a silly story. It's a fucking yeah, it, silly story. It, it leans into just the overblown emotions and just the the self-seriousness that I think undergirds all those stories. And also the the record industry stuff that, that they're, they're, they're going into. And yeah. there's, it's interesting, yeah, that there's that huge contract. And it looks like winslow's cantata it's just they're both like huge piles of paper that really right. no one but them can understand and like so like this is swan's cantata is this giant contract and it's like yeah like, like winslow's going through it and it's just yeah all this the impenetrable stuff and it gets to the point where it's like i think it's like all things excluded will be deemed included and it's just yes, like, like yes, the sense that it just basically yeah. says everything else also i have i also have everything else i haven't that's not in this contract is also mine right and it's just, and it's like, and as soon as Swan signs contracts, he immediately goes back on them. He goes back on the contract with Winslow and doesn't let Phoenix in the right. show. And then tries to, he tries to brick Winslow up in his yes. like little office in the paradise. That's again, another a cask of Amontillado thing. Like there's just so many fun little like horror things in this. This is such a, like a nice homage to, I think, 
like can't be not or just just horror in general but like yeah I, I completely forgot about that yeah like oh yeah and then there's the um there's the cabinet of dr caligari stuff going on in the background of uh the undead show and in their costumes yep. so there's the there's the kind of gothic and german expressionism angle kind of being being yeah. pulled into this um but like but all being shown like here's here's what happens when this machine touches culture of any kind whatever it is yeah here's here's yeah. what it you know gets gets turned into along the way because swan is in charge of it and it's all because right. he couldn't he couldn't himself handle dying and he couldn't himself handle being out of the spotlight and not being young anymore depending on the version you know it's always for debate like why some people make it very freudian and weird like oh she, she looks like his mom which fucking hate that um <laughs> yeah. sometimes it is just like raw attraction to a voice sometimes it is like multiple things like vulnerability and also being you know very good at taking advantage of people even if you think you're you know well-intentioned which uh oh my gosh yeah no i, I love me a fucked up monster man so <laughs> like there's that appeal too uh of course. <laughs> Which I, I'm literally like, I have a, a um a print of Sandra Clegane on my wall right now, and I'm just like, hell yeah. That. <laughs> well, that's yeah. yeah. I mean, in in, in Aswath terms, that you, you can't help but think that when you got Winslow with his scarred face looking down, when he's got the spotlight um on Jessica Harper during the final show, and it's just like he's prepared for death at that point, but he just wants to have her. You know, you can just see him going, "Sing, little bird, you promised me." Yeah, at that point. Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, I, I am nothing if not predictable. And when I first read the song of fire, <laughs> I was like, "Motherfucker," you know, like not again, you know. <laughs> just because all I do is think about Phantom of the Opera, and that's why my brain is cheese. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I literally sit and think about it a lot. But um, I, you know, rewatched this movie last night. Um, and I just think, like, that there's sincerity in melodrama, and that's why melodrama has its appeal. You know, it is emotions on the sleeve, and it's extreme and ridiculous, but at the end of the day, it, it commits, you know, to, to feeling something. Something like, you know, Phantom is like, oh, I remember feeling ugly and not getting the attention of somebody that I liked, and I feel that really hard, you know. I didn't fucking, you know, kill a bunch of people and stuff like that. I, and I was also, you know, doing okay. I just, I just didn't get into, like you know ap english so i think that was where my bitterness lay you know but like <laughs> uh like i remember feeling that and just being like why why not me um when i think of, you think of faust and you get older and you're like i hate being older and it's not fun like would it be cool if i could be younger again you know like like there's very real truth in melodrama um and i think why i like this particular version of phantom so much is it like as much as it has its fun in leaning in with the fun like it kind of just exposes like the inherent romanticism of the story i totally agree and i think you can see that in um in the music of winslow's that we do get to hear because it mm -hmm. is extremely sweeping and romantic and even when we are kind of supposed to poke fun at him the music itself i think de palma wants to think it's good and it's, it's yeah. beautiful even and to understand that it's kind of just drowning and it just doesn't kind of that beauty just doesn't really stand a chance that one that one montage where it's like you see kind of phoenix's ascension into like swan's like grip where like he's just sitting there in the studio like doing a ton of drugs like that's the other thing there's just, like so many like ridiculous like 70s like music drug jokes in this and like so swan's just basically feeding him pills non-stop right. breakfast just, like, he's got of, like, the suitcase yeah, yeah exactly. breakfast yeah <laughs> exactly and it's just like this really beautiful song set to just him like collapsed over a desk you know while everyone else is like dicking him over it's just like man 
so good. I know what that feels like, you know, <laughs> even if I don't know exactly what that feels like. Yeah, right. There's that montage of all the pianos and him. Yeah, work, working his song, re- reworking it for her. And uh, like, yeah, the only the alternative is to be the be the backing band, be the Juicy Fruit slash Beach Bum slash Undead and just have no distinct personality whatsoever. And that right. is kind of kind of the deal Swan made. And uh, Winslow is just he's just got too much feeling in him. Yeah, he's just he's a sad boy. Who knows what Sandor is getting up to on the quiet aisle? I hope he has some sort of artistic pursuit just to make the fan to mangle. <laughs> he gets. He gets like in the basket weaving, or like he gets he gets into felting. And I'm only saying that because I'm felting, and I like to imagine him with his giant hands just like felting right, little just making something, or something very like lovely. That. Exactly, he yeah. makes everyone put on plays about the end of the Blackwater, extremely oh, yeah. en- endlessly baroque <laughs> plays. By 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 the end of which he he was the hero of the whole battle after all. Along. Oh my god, he's writing his self insert fan fiction. I 100% know that because that man is just like I'm. I'm just now starting a storm of swords, so I'm really excited for um your guys's uh, go through of it. And it's just like this man is writing fan fiction in his head the whole goddamn book. Like it's true, the whole book. You're just like the revisionist history here of yourself, man. That is going on right now, or like the idealized self that you see, or even like the bad self of your like the the, the bad part of yourself that you want to project. You like it's all very false and distorted, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm just like this man just writes fan fiction, and like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> essentially. That obsession he has with the song with Sansa is, of course, you know, in large part about like this kind of repressed romantic instinct. But it's also because he loves songs and stories and kind of distillations of things in the same way that a character like the the Phantom or Winslow does. And if, you know, if Sansa had just said to him, the war is terrible and maybe you should think about not fighting anymore. Like that wouldn't have had the same impact as her singing to him a song with that that same message. And, he, you know, he's it's that that kind of belief in something transcendent that can leave you different from where you were a minute ago that yeah, uh, it's that cuts across them all yeah exactly like this kind of transcendentness of music is mm-hmm. that we communicate on things and understand each other on things that are just deeper than regular conversation that we're having yeah like th- that that's really really powerful and that's why he's definitely learning how to play electric guitar um no exactly uh, <laughs> he's learning Freebird. he's gonna show up to sansa's house and just be like hey i learned all of stairway to heaven and she's just like please fucking leave me alone I'm like dude I, sh- I can't i love that that part is something i always love of the rhaegar backstory is that he was not just mm. that he was singing but that he just there was no opportunity at which he would not sing and, right. like, and like it, it worked to made Liana sniffle, but like everyone else is just like, ah, right then. Rager's always just showing up and like ruining the vibe for the rest of the guys. Like it's very exactly. funny to be. Like, just, I mean, that's why Robert really just, had enough of him. Rager's like the guy in every like high school like theater party afterwards. He's just like, hey, I'm gonna play like um, I'm gonna whip out my guitar and play uh, um, you know, uh, uh, we're gonna play like some Ben Folds, you know. <laughs> You're just like, please right. stop. Starts cracking his fingers. Starts getting ready. Yes. Uh, I rewatched a, a Gosford Park recently, and there's a one oh, character so keeps playing good. piano. I love that movie. Yeah. One character keeps playing piano, and then everyone starts to clap, and Maggie Smith just goes, "No, no, 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 no! Please don't!" He'll just go on and on and on and on. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's 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 Rhaegar. I actually read this is like this is too revealing myself. I actually read like a a Song of Ice and Fire Phantom retelling where Rhaegar was the Phantom. Oh, you don't say! In my mind, yeah, it was it was it was pretty fun. It was very unexpected because it was like it was it was Sansa and Sander focused, but it was like Rhaegar is the Phantom in this one. And I was just interesting. Like, interesting. Well, interesting. it's that that dashing Byronic figure that that keeps coming back. 
Yeah. Uh, George wrote a, a, the uh, the vampire novel Fever Dream that he wrote has one of the main characters is is extremely that way. Quotes Byron all the time and is very pale oh and, and a vampire <laughs> um, and uh, just very, very romantic. In Phantom of the Paradise, it's like it's uh, Winslow. He doesn't even really seem to think of himself that way. It is just like 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 Lana quoted earlier that that aesthetic judgment. That's that's really everything to him. Yeah. It's just the yeah. not even the music as a means. To, I mean, he does have a romantic obsession with Phoenix, but it seems like it's really just like it's because she fits. It's because she's his muse and fits the music so well. Yeah. And it's the music really more than anything still first. I hadn't thought about this until just, like, talking it out right now, but, like, I mentioned earlier that Guillermo del Toro said this is, like, one of his favorite films, and, I mean, like, for surface level reasons, you're like, oh, cool, yeah, like, it's it's horror, it's, like, Beauty and the Beast, he loves that kind of stuff, but also, like, I watched Kronos again pretty recently, too, and Kronos actually reminds me a lot of this film. It's, like, very, like, it feels like a really good Twilight Zone episode, and that's kind of what Phantom of the Paradise feels like to me, like, a, a little bit of a sillier, but, like, yes this is an alternate theater where souls come in to die you know and get churned out and like that sort of thing and chronos kind of has that like episode of the week feel but in like a really good way that does that doesn't sound like a compliment but it's it's a compliment i i was having this conversation with someone else about you know the, a lot of the comparisons that are made to this film and then rocky horror picture show um mm-hmm. i like rocky horror in the same way that every like theater kid has a rocky horror phase but like to me this is the better movie like i could like rocky horror is like i have to be in a mood to watch that like because it's like this is actually just like a really competently made film like that understands that like i think that like knows the tools it's using and uses them well enough that you're just like this actually makes sense and is 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 gratifying to watch whereas rocky horror i'm just like okay get to my favorite song you know (laughs) i've had great experiences watching rocky horror with people People have the, the parts we're here for, and it does feel kind of yeah. loose in vignettes. And, and Phantom has that thing that I think a lot of great movies have, which is just controlled chaos and the experience of everything just yes. being all over the place. But really, the the script does lock it in. And when it does, it is it is moving fast, as we said earlier. It is it is doing so so it has time to kind of stretch out in the scenes that have a lot of real impact. So yeah, it is a. I think it is it is a, a competent movie more than I think a lot of cult classics. A lot of which kind of get yeah. in, become endearing just because of. Uh, being kind of all over the place, which this one is in terms of style, but I think it is a really well-told story too. Yeah, no, it's funny because like my sister, uh, she's she's only like uh, 18 months younger than me. And so I was the older one and whatever I like, she had to like too. So like anytime I'll be like, want to see something phantom related she's like i want to fucking kill you actually um but like (laughs) she had never seen this movie which shocked me because like one she's a huge daft punk fan she loves camp horror especially like 70s horror and she's a big brian de palma fan and she'd never seen this and i sat her down to watch it about three months ago and like 10 minutes into it she turned to me and she's like this movie kicks ass like why have I not seen this before? You know, it's the same thing with my husband, again, who has to, you know, bear my existence of being a Phantom <laughs> of the Opera influencer, who is just like, please know more. And when he saw this for the first time, he was like, that was awesome. Like, it's so much more than I think what it looks like. I totally agree. It's one of those that, you know, really, it, it hooks you in. I was watching it with Chloe, and then we were we were humming the songs afterward. And the songs, you know, we didn't talk much about uh, the music itself, but the, the music is, is really hummable. Oh, my favorite is actually the song that plays during the credits, The Hell of It. I like, was just going to say that. that that's my favorite. such a good song. That's such a bop. And it's like Paul Williams with his yeah. piano bouncing along, singing about how everything's meaningless and how you're, you're the worst. Goodbye. We've all come to say goodbye. Yeah. And the credits are playing. It's just perfect. Like, we're all going to die alone. That's how, that's like the line in the song. We're all going to die alone. And that's the hell of it. And you're just like, damn, Paul Williams really brought it for this one. It's got that really great, like, 
hard rock lick to it too. Bow, like mm, bow, it's good bow. stuff. Yeah, it's perfect. And yeah. yeah, it's great. It mirrors the opening where the the juicy fruit song is super catchy and everyone's ooing along, but it's about an objectively horrible thing. Pop culture will will, will take anything you can throw at it and turn it around and uh, and make it okay again. And we kind of just see that enacted in the movie. I love when people don't know like who Paul Williams is, and like then you tell him he wrote Rainbow Connection, and they're like, "What?" You know, <laughs> it's such a. Even though I hear Rainbow Connection, I hear moving right along. You know, like Paul Williams has a very Paul Williams music style, but like <laughs> this is my favorite of his of his music, to be perfectly honest. Oh, agreed. Like, yeah, that's that's another thing that seems kind of fitting is that I would never listen to Paul Williams on my own. <laughs> But, yeah. but it just fits the kind of just that the kind of that sleek exhausted because yeah like this is mid 70s and it, like this is the time when a lot of people who were sincerely into the rock and roll as organizing social political principle this is when it was starting to sink in oh that's not gonna last or if it is gonna yeah. last it's gonna be at a very kind of underground scene level I, I'm a, I am a huge sucker for works of like yeah counterculture exhaustion that like kind of takes mm-hmm. stock with that there's like the Hunter Thompson line from Fear and Loathing I absolutely love when he gets to the top of the hotel and he says, you can, you can, if you look out from here, you can see where the great wave of positivity coming out from California crashed and fell back. And that's yeah. that, there's that but, same uh, feeling in this movie here of like that, again, like the, the Philbin wearing like the, the clothes that like, you know, Graham Parsons and Neil Young used to wear, but on him, right. it's just such fun. And like we, all these gestures had meaning and they were briefly something really powerful. And now it's, now it's just costumes. Right, like fifties, fifties counterculture and the freedom of the motorcycle, and being like the first of like the youth culture to say, "I don't care that you fought in World War Two. I got to yeah. do me." You know, like it's all lost its meaning now. Yeah, like ah, oh, it's so good. Like it's just such a good thing, like uh, a reflection on nostalgia, even if it doesn't like pose itself as one of those. Like it, we're all just gonna die alone. Well, I think that's gonna wrap us up for uh, for Phantom of the Paradise. Angelina, thanks so much for coming on. I was really looking forward to this, and uh, I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I, I I'm a huge fan, and I had a great time talking too. I'm always down to talk Phantom and all sorts of other bullshit. Excellent. But thank you. <laughs> well, we'll have to. Yeah, we'll have to have you back once we uh, get into Storm of Swords. Once Jeff is uh, allowed back into his throne. Yeah, gotta wrap my man, Sander. <laughs> exactly. So, where can people find your stuff online? I'm on Twitter under YAngelinaY, and if you like shitposting, that's primarily what I do, but um, I'm also a writer and co-editor for a YouTuber, Lindsay Ellis, and so if you just YouTube her, my work is that, and uh, I also write for a series called It's Lit. It's for PBS. It's about books. This wasn't about books, this this conversation at all, but if you like books, <laughs> check it out. I've been known to read books every now and then. Not Jeff. Jeff doesn't read. No. <laughs> and thanks to everyone, uh, as always, for listening. You can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts. You can check out our Patreon on patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. So Jeff's going to be coming back in a couple weeks, and then we'll be kicking things off with the prologue to Storm of Storm. So thanks so much for, for listening to everything in the interim, folks, and we'll see you again soon.